the headmaster was an Englishman of a type familiar in the colonies, a product of Winchester, England's oldest boarding or public school, and Cambridge University. I visited the school, Adisadal College, in 2001 for the first time. I was struck by the grace and tranquility of its environment, as the school stands high on a hill in Cape Coast, Ghana's oldest town, which had been colonised by the Dutch in the 17th century. I realised that very few schools in Britain enjoyed such a pleasant setting. And yet the story of the school since independence in 1956 reflected the turbulent, unsettled history of the country since that time. In 1960, there had been 600 boys at the school. There were now over 2,000, and yet the facilities and infrastructure had remained the same. The shortage of money had not really changed the ethos of the place, even though the school tried to shake off its imperial past, and had done this successfully by abolishing, for example, the teaching of ancient Greek in 1963. There were still many traces of the old order. The school had been transformed, but vestiges of the empire could still be seen, not least in the house system favoured in British boarding schools and the honours boards in the dining room. The empire, in a certain sense, still existed, although it now clung on only in a twilight afterlife that carried an eerie echo of its original character. This book attempts to describe some of that afterlife by giving an account of a country's experience before independence and afterwards. The character of the empire is portrayed through the forgotten officials and governors, without whom it would not have survived more than a few weeks. I have not written one of those books that purport to show that the empire was a good thing or a bad thing. I have tried to transcend what I believe to be a rather sterile debate on its merits and demerits. I have simply sought to enter, as best as I could, into the mentality of the empire's rulers, to describe their thoughts and their ideals and values. I argue that individual officials wielded immense power, and it was this that ultimately led to disorder and even chaos. Officials, as I hope to show, often developed one line of policy, only for their successors to overturn it and pursue a completely different approach. This was a source of chronic instability in many parts of the empire. In many ways, the British were too individualistic, and the vagaries of democratic politics meant that a consistent line was seldom adopted. I have called this anarchic individualism, in that there was often nothing to stop the man on the spot, as he was called, by the colonial office officials, from pursuing the course of action he thought best. From Nigeria, where Lord Lugard dominated the scene, to Hong Kong, where Sir Alexander Grantham successfully ended any move towards more democratic institutions in the 1950s. Powerful individuals directed imperial policy with little supervision from Whitehall. Such a system was ultimately anarchic and self-defeating, as policies developed over years in Nigeria, Sudan, Hong Kong and elsewhere were simply put aside when a new governor took his place. These reversals of policy show that the empire was an intensely pragmatic affair. Apart from a common educational background, and a sense of shared style, individual governors and officials had a wide range of interests and beliefs. Some were motivated by a strong evangelical Christianity, others were outright atheists. Some governors were highly conservative, while others were more liberal, even radical. What bound these people together was a very similar educational background, which leads inevitably to the notion of class. Class was central to the British Empire. As one historian has argued, Britons in the imperial age saw themselves as belonging to an unequal society 
characterized by a seamless web of layered gradations, hallowed by time and precedent. The empire was extremely hierarchical. In each colony, there were highly detailed tables of precedent, which showed exactly where everyone stood in the pecking order. These tables sometimes revealed whether the superintendent of the botanical and forestry department came before the director of the royal observatory. But this hierarchy was not really the kind we associate with feudal society. What tends to be overlooked in discussions about class in Britain is the extent to which it was often merely a synonym for money and education. In a feudal society, class is associated with the idea of family and breeding. Yet as early as 1775, Topham Beauclerk could tell James Boswell, Dr. Johnson's biographer, that now in England being of an old family was of no consequence. People did not inquire far back. If a man was rich and well-educated, he was equally well